please be seated. 1 Corinthians 12, 19-31 says, A body isn't really a body, unless there's more than one part. It takes many parts to make a single body. That's why the eyes cannot say they don't need the hands. That's also why the head cannot say it doesn't need the feet. In fact, we cannot get along without the parts of the body that seem to be the weakest. We take special care to dress up some parts of our bodies. We're modest about our personal parts, but we don't have to be modest about other parts. God put our bodies together in such a way that even the parts that seem the least important are valuable. He did this to make all parts of the body work together smoothly, with each part caring about the others. If one part of our body hurts, we hurt all over. If one part of our body is honoured, the whole body will be happy. Together, you are the body of Christ. Each of you is part of his body. First, God chose some people to be apostles and prophets and teachers for the church. But he also chose some to work miracles or heal the sick or help others or be leaders or speak different kinds of languages. Not everyone is an apostle. Not everyone is a prophet. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone can work miracles. Not everyone can heal the sick. Not everyone can speak different kinds of languages. Not everyone can tell what these languages mean. I want you to desire the best gifts. So I will show you a much better way. Thanks be to God for his word. And doing things decently in order now, we'll have the prayers. Thank you. I'm sure that was my fault, not Tim's, folks. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> in that last hymn we sung, um, it talked of the, um, of the blessings that we receive through, uh, through Christ. Um, and if there's a connecting theme in in, as I lead you in prayer this morning, it's that, the blessings that we've received and how we want others to share in them. May I lead you? Will you pray with me? Our Father, we've come to you this morning in praise and thanksgiving and supplication. Lord, we praise you for who you are, your mighty creative power, your absolute righteousness and your capacity to love. Lord, we thank you for your readiness to reveal yourself in Scripture through the incarnation in Jesus and through the examination of all your creation. Lord, you've made us in a measure like yourself with a capacity to love, an inclination to search for the truth, a longing to know and praise you, a desire to be creative. You've given us a sense of righteousness and of injustice and a dislike of all evil, and the bringing of forgiveness and restoration. So, Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, for the gift of salvation, and we pray for all who need to know that salvation, those who seek to bring it, and those who seek to bring it. Some of us are family and friends whom we want to see drawn into your kingdom. Lord, give us an opportunity and skill in drawing them to your truth. Lord, we pray for young people and those who work with them in schools and church work, and especially at this, as, as holiday ventures soon take place. 
Lord, place your Holy Spirit upon that work, drawing young people to the truth of your kingdom. And Lord, we pray for our Baptist world mission workers, that they may be protected and their work for your kingdom advanced. Lord, we thank you for the peaceful lives we enjoy and we pray for peacemakers in so many areas where there is strife, destruction and death. Holy Spirit, bring peace and where Christians and others suffer prejudices and persecution, bring protection and justice, we pray. Lord, we pray that the recent developments concerning North Korea may translate into a lasting peace in that zone and prosperity for the people of North Korea. Lord, we thank you for productive soil, favourable climate, a stable economy, so that we enjoy all the beauty of your creation and the comforts of men's creative ingenuity. Lord, we pray for those who struggle to feed their families because of unfair trading, unstable government or ignorance. Lord, bring justice and knowledge and prosperity in those circumstances, we pray. Lord, we thank you for the peace of mind we have in knowing Jesus as our Saviour and that you are preparing for us to join you in your kingdom where sin and evil will be vanquished. So we pray for those who, for whatever reason, find such peace hard to experience. May your love and the friendship of Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit would be with them, bringing deep and lasting and releasing peace. Lord, where it is within our power to advance these things, we pray that we might be, receive your prompting and the capacity to be co-workers in bringing forward your kingdom. Lord, hear our prayer for these things in the name of Jesus, we ask, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. Back in the days when the various parts of the body didn't necessarily all agree with each other, as they do now, but each had its own ideas and its own voice, some parts began to think that it was unfair that they should have to worry and toil to provide everything for the belly. Well, the belly just sat there in their midst with nothing to do but to enjoy the bounty they brought to it. They therefore conspired together and agreed that the hands would no longer carry food to the mouth, that the mouth would no longer open for food, and the jaws and teeth would no longer grind up what they received. Well, the belly growled and tossed about in protest, but the limbs remained steadfast in their angry resolve to starve the belly into submission. Soon, though, they began to feel weak. Their fatigue grew worse and worse until they, the belly and the entire body nearly perished from starvation. Thus it had become clear that even the seemingly idle belly had its own task to perform and returned as much as it received 
by digesting the food brought to it and returning nourishment to the limbs via the blood. I have in my study a wooden figure that reminds me of that parable first told by Menenaeus Agrippa, a Roman consul, hundreds of years before Paul wrote about the members of the body of Christ needing each other. And it's a guy without a stomach and not looking very well on it. The point is the same. No part of the body is surplus to requirements. In the parable, the members of the body thought they could do without the stomach, which as far as they were concerned was just lazy and greedy, take, take, taking all the time. In reality, they found out that the well-being of the entire body depended on the welfare of the stomach. And for their own sake, they needed to look after this part of the body that they discounted as being of no value or importance whatsoever. And when he talks about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the eye can't say to the hand, well, I don't need you, you don't matter, you don't count, we don't need you, you're superfluous. On the contrary, the eye is dependent on the hand, as every part of the body is dependent on all the other parts. If the eye sees something good to eat, how is the body going to enjoy the food unless the hands play their part in placing the food in the mouth? It would be a fallacy for any part of the body to suppose it was so capable and independent it had no need of any of the other parts or any of the single other parts. In the same way, none of us is so capable and independent that we don't need other people. On the contrary, each individual part of the body needs and relies on all the other members of the body to function. As it is in the physical body, so it is in the body of Christ. None of us is self-sufficient. Each of us has an indispensable role to play if the body as a whole is to prosper And each of us needs and relies on other members of the body to nourish us and support us and enable us to do everything that we do. In those days before the NHS, medical knowledge was mainly based around guesswork. People thought that the body's health depended on the balance of four substances in the body which were referred to as humours. And we get four Uh, characterizations of what kind of people we might be based upon these four humours. So you get a sanguine people who are confident and and, and courageous and think that they can do stuff. And that is the characteristic of having a a large quantity of blood in the body. And and that was the humour that originated in the heart. You get choleric, angry people. And that was thought to come from yellow bile which had its origins in the liver. You get the melancholic and depressed kind of personality, and that was due to an excess of black bile, which originated in the spleen. And you get phlegmatic, easygoing people who aren't easily excited. That's, that's me. And that comes from an excess of phlegm, which they thought originated in the brain. And the way they thought all this worked was different parts of the body were, were better at coping with these humours and other parts. And, and parts of the body were considered to be stronger or weaker on this basis. So a strong part of the body could cope with these different humours, and a weak part of the body couldn't manage, 
quite so well. So if a strong part of the body, one of the coping parts of the body, suddenly packed up and didn't cope with the humours quite so well, the whole body was in serious trouble. But the well-being of the body depended on the different parts of the body working together. If there was a disease in the body, it was no good the stronger parts of the body shrugging it off and saying, well, we don't want this here. It can go away to another part of the body and they send it to a weaker part of the body that then can't cope with it. The disease simply stays in the body forever. The way the body dealt with the disease was if the stronger part saw that a weaker part was struggling and said, let me take that that you're struggling with, let me take it upon myself because I can handle that and I will deal with it and make sure it gets out of the body. The well-being of the body depended upon the stronger parts, not shrugging its shoulders and saying, well, the weaker part is no concern of mine. The well-being of the body depended on the stronger parts saying, your concern is my concern. You're struggling with this. Let me take that from you and deal with that for you. If the stronger parts act independently and say, well, their problem isn't my problem, the whole body suffers. The job of the strong parts of the body was to protect and look after the weaker parts of the body, because only that way would the body as a whole be healthy. And that's how it works in the body of Christ. Those of us who are strong, capable, confident, Our role is to look after, to be concerned about, to bear the burdens of the weaker, more vulnerable members of the body of Christ who struggle. Because we're all in this together. We all belong to each other. And even those parts of the body that we might think, well, they're they're weaker, they don't count for very much. Actually, they play an indispensable part in the body. And our well-being depends upon their well-being. So we need to be caring for each other. None of us is ever in a position of saying, well, your problem isn't my problem. I don't need you. We do need each other. The well-being of the whole body depends upon our capacity to care for each other, to support each other, to help each other when life gets difficult. So Paul says, the head can't say to the feet, well, I don't need you. Actually, the head is so far away from the feet, particularly if you're tall like me, uh, the head might just forget how dependent it is upon the feet. But if the head thinks, today I'll go and do this or that, it will soon find out that without the feet, the head isn't going anywhere. And the head, with its exalted position at the top of the body, might mistakenly suppose that that gives it a degree of superiority over the feet. But actually, as you see, every time you do your shoelaces up, the head has to bow down and get right down close to where the feet are. So although the foot is the lowest and perhaps arguably the least honourable bit of the body, the whole body, every day, your whole body bows down to deal with the feet because there's no other way about it. And that's how it is in the body of Christ that the least honourable members of the body are those that the whole body bows down to honour and take care of and look after. The early church father Chrysostom put it this way. By all that befalls them, good and painful, are the members bound to one another. Thus often when a thorn is fixed in the heel, 
the whole body feels it and cares for it. Both the back is bent and the belly and thighs are contracted, the hands coming forth as guards and servants to draw out what was so fixed, and the head stoops over it, and the eyes observe it with much care. So that even if the foot has inferiority from its inability to ascend, yet by its bringing down the head it has an equality and is favoured with the same honour. And especially whenever the feet are the cause of the heads coming down, not by favour but by their claim on it. And thus it indicates great equality. Since what is meaner than the heel? What more honourable than the head? Yet this member reaches to that and moves them all together with itself. I am not able to bring my foot up to the level of my head. Some of you might be able to. I respect you enormously if you can. But most of us in the category of if... The foot needs something, the head goes right down and deals with the foot at the foot's level. It's the only way we can operate. And in the body of Christ, those who can't able to lift themselves up and do great things, the whole body gathers together to come down to their level and care for them and take care of them exactly where they need it. So if the foot is the least honourable part of the body because it has the lowest, most debased position within the body, the whole body regularly bows down in a way that expresses honour to get to the foot, in a way that expresses submission to get to the foot. In the same way in the body of Christ, we pay no attention to people's status or prestige or how gifted or how clever they are in terms of the level of respect that we accord them. We don't look up to some people and look down on others depending on how much esteem we think they might merit or how much we think they are worth. Now, in the body of Christ, we honour those who perhaps in the eyes of the world lack the status symbols that place them high on the list of people who matter, people who count. In the body of Christ, everybody matters. Everybody counts. Everybody is worthy of honour, time and respect. There's no room for ambition or envy or status-seeking. We don't look down on anybody. We are called to honour everybody. And this ties in with one of our key aspirations in terms of our relationships with each other. We aspire to be inclusive so that everyone, regardless of age or background, knows that they are a significant part of our church. In my quiet times, I'm using a website called Aramis, which means we pray, and it has a kind of daily office. And yesterday's prayer tied in with this theme quite well, I thought. Let me read to you what it says. God of our lives, help us not to forget the little people, those seemingly insignificant, misshapen people, the ones who don't get much thought or recognition, who are often rejected as being useless, the shy people, the different people, the gentle people, the low self-esteem people, the diffident people, the not-so-sure-I'm-really-any-good people. Fit them into your walls to make the church, our communities, our world, what they were meant to be. And help us to see that without them, churches crumble, communities perish, and the walls of our world fall down. 
So Paul puts it well, God's plan is that there should be no division in the body, but all its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. This ties in with another of our aspirations in terms of our relationships with each other. In terms of pastoral care, we aspire to share in people's triumphs, joys and victories, to support each other in pain, loss and anxiety, and to be a safe place where Jesus meets us at our point of need and empowers us to walk in newness of life. We work together as a team. Tomorrow, we will see how good the English football team is at working together as a team. They've not managed that for as long as I can remember. And the harsh lesson since 1966 is if we don't work together, we don't succeed. And what's true of a football team is true of a church as well. It's as simple and as basic as that. Because we're not simply a collection of individuals, however gifted each individual might be, but we are bound together as members of the single body of Christ. And that means that what affects one affects all. When one member of the church gets it right, everyone rejoices. When one member of the church gets it, gets it wrong, everyone mourns with them over that. We are bound to each other. Paul invites us to think about our bodies, which, as he puts it, those bits, he says, which are unpresentable or seemingly less respectable, those bits we don't show in public. We take a special care to make sure that they are covered up and not exposed to public scrutiny. How does that picture of making yourself decent apply to the church? Well, sometimes even people in churches behave inappropriately, not conforming to social standards, being rude to other people, abusing, using abusive language towards another person. That is not a loving or proper way to behave. How do we respond to that? Do we get angry in return and kind of, you know, give like for like? The Bible talks about love covering a multitude of sins pronounces a blessing on the person whose sin has been covered over. That doesn't mean that such behaviour is swept under the carpet and people pretend that nothing has happened, but it does mean we look for ways to restore dignity to the person whose behaviour has been inappropriate, to cover over their sin and restore them again. It might even be judged that this or that person has behaved disgracefully, offending not just against social standards, but against moral standards as well. In that case, the church doesn't shun someone who's gone off the rails and treat them as if they were a pariah or beyond the pale. Our response is to find ways of taking away the shame of how they feel and the guilt of what they've done. Find ways of enabling them to know that they are accepted, not shamed. Forgiven, not condemned redeemed, not rejected. Just as all of us take great care to make sure that all those bits of our bodies that need covering up look decent, so anyone who has good reason to be ashamed of who they are because of the stuff they've done in the past should find in the church a place where they are accepted and given dignity and respect, where the past is forgiven, sin is covered over, Disgrace is lifted from them 
and they are helped and enabled to live well in the knowledge of the grace they found among the people of God. So what does the image of the church as the body of Christ say about the kind of church we need to be? We're called to be a church where the strong go out of their way to protect the weak. Because unless that happens, the whole body will end up weakened and debilitated. We're called to be a community where nobody looks down on anybody else, but everyone is worthy of honour and respect. And we're called to be a fellowship where people who've done wrong in the past find acceptance, forgiveness and restoration. A place of healing and extended family where everyone feels at home and experiences God's love and acceptance in Christ so that we are all equipped to express our faith in our daily lives. That's our vision. That's the direction we feel God is calling us to move in. And we may well have a long way to go. But God is leading us. And by his grace we'll get there. And get there together. Because we are all members who belong to each other within the single body of Christ.